0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Mary Childs. Mary Childs is a co-host for NPR's Planet Money podcast, and she's here to discuss her new book titled The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. The Bond King tells the story of American investor Bill Gross, who's probably best known for founding the powerful and wildly successful investment firm PIMCO. He also played a major role in helping shape the government's response to the 2008 financial crisis and the response to the Great Recession. At the pinnacle of Gross's career, he was on top of the world. Then it kind of all fell apart. The Bond King is deeply investigated, it's thorough, and it's a really fascinating look at the history and the evolution of the bond market, as influenced, of course, by Bill Gross. But it's also kind of a character study. Bill Gross is a fascinating and quirky character. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mary Child. Mary Child, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So you worked on this project about the billionaire and investor Bill Gross for, what, seven years? Yes, that's right. (laughs) So why this project and, and why Bill Gross? Why is his story so interesting and his influence on the bond market?
1: So I think that a number of things are at play here. I think this, this story ends up being a vehicle for so many different things that I think are so crucially important to understand and to appreciate in our society. There's, you know, the bond market itself, which is so foundational and huge and I think poorly understood in the mainstream and like unenthusiastically understood where it is. You know, I think like I find bonds super interesting and to me, that's where a lot of rubber meets road in, in financial markets and and things become very real for companies and borrowers. And that's just not super mainstream. You know, you don't hear about that on like CBS or whatever. So to me, that seemed like something worthwhile, you know, seemed like something that we should we should be talking more about. And Bill Gross himself as a person. Is just endlessly fascinating. You know, he's super reflective. He was a psych major in college. He's this billionaire legend, like a living legend of the financial market. And that creates this really interesting dynamic where people I talked to, half of them thought that he was this god and half of them thought that, you know, he was just lucky. There's so much kind of from a brand like external perspective, but then internally, people who worked with him had very disparate opinions as well. It was there was just so much to work with. And he's just like endlessly out there creating new content, which actually kind of created a hindrance for my book because I couldn't stop writing it. He kept doing stuff and I had to keep updating the book. But yeah, he provides this really interesting lens to think about American society and what we consider success, what we think of as having made it. And, and you know, he's a billionaire. He's He was so influentially, so powerful. And things really changed for him in the past, you know, seven years over the course of writing this book, basically. And I think there's a lot to kind of to say about what we value in America. You know, I'm thinking I just read the New York Times review of my book, which ah, uh, (laughs) um, they had James Stewart uh, review my book, which is itself such a great honor. He's an incredible author and, um, you know, just one of the like goats of financial journalism. And. One thing that he said and that another reviewer said is that the subtitle is is too far. is kind of misleading. They were like, oh, it's, you know, it says that he lost it all and he didn't. He still has, you know, billions of dollars.
0: That's a really interesting question. How do we measure that? I was thinking that, you know, the undercurrent of Bill Gross's story is that he was once on top. Right, and uh-huh. he's fallen. Right, yeah. and, you know that's debatable because he still is a billionaire. Right, he has this beautiful oceanfront property, and you know he wrote this memoir. I don't know if it was written after your book or at the same time. And It was in the title was "I'm Still Here." I'm still so standing. Exactly. exactly. I'm still standing. Right, which implies something. It's kind of defiant, right? Absolutely. And you know, I don't know. Like, why does he have this image of you know having fallen? You know, even though he left the company that he that he helped found. You know, I think it was in 1971 was when he founded the company but he left in what 2019 you know even though he left the company that doesn't necessarily in 2014 doesn't imply that he's he's fallen so how does he have that image and what do you think that title of his memoir means
1: um that's such a great question and i think that's really incisive right he has this memoir out called i'm still standing wherein he's basically writing his own version of my book, right? It's it's his own words. It's his own recounting of his long career, of his time at PIMCO, of his experience of being ousted from, you know, the firm that he co-founded in 1971, as you say. And it is defiant. I think that's such a great word for this, where he's, you know, he's taking the narrative into his own hands. And that actually is something that I think was really interesting in reporting this book. And, you know, writing about any powerful person is they're so unaccustomed to not having control over the narrative. And that's super uncomfortable for them. So. Obviously, everyone wants to have their own say, right? And I am i think that's what you're seeing here is, is he's writing his own history and his own story for himself and, you know, framing it in the terms that he wants, which is great. But there is, you know, there is this interesting debate where it's like, okay, in my book, it's very much the rise, the fall. And I, I wrote that because I think it's right. But it's perfectly arguable that, you know, he hasn't fallen to, you know, he's not destitute. You're right. He has a gorgeous oceanfront house and a couple other homes as well in, you know, extremely desirable locations. And he has a Dale Chihuly sculpture that's very, you know, large enough to argue over with his neighbor. (laughs) There is so he still has so much. So, yes, you know, the the lost it all is, you know, in my view, you know, that the subtitle of the book is how one man made a market, built an empire and lost it all and again he has stable housing he has food he has family he's he's doing okay but at the same time he lost his empire right he lost the company that he co-founded he was ousted in his view he says he was fired and i think he lost a lot of of the things that he valued that he found that were so precious to him like his image uh, a lot a lot of his image really changed and really it became a different story publicly and i think he also lost a lot of um some of his personal relationships which projecting a little bit there but i would think that having a strong relationship with your son that would be important to me i think losing that seems that made me really sad
0: so narrative is really important to him and crafting a narrative that props up his image is is really important to him i think there was something in the book where you say or he was asked at one point like what was more important to him fame or wealth and he said fame So in that sense, I could see that money aside, your your financial standing aside, his image was what he Hmm. wanted to keep intact. Am I reading that correctly?
1: Yes. So he had this question that he always asked potential PIMCO employees where he would say, do you want money, fame, or power? And he thought this was a good interview question because it made everyone uncomfortable. And they would be like, oh, God, there's clearly a right answer. Like, what should I say? And to him, there was always a right answer. His right answer was fame he was always motivated from the get go by fame and he would tell anyone who wanted to hear. So, you know, that kind of self-awareness is really unusual, but I think that also, to me, that informs, you know, how I framed this book and how I thought about his trajectory where, you know, in the Twitter verse, which you can weight that however you want, the, you know, Bill Gross to Janice literally became a meme, you know, that became, you know, so-and-so to Janice, that framing, that, that, became something that people said anytime there was a, a major shift or anytime something kind of embarrassing happened. So that I think is indicative of of how far we've come from this, you know, the Bond King, great legend on the cover of all these magazines. To me, that's informative. And to me, that says, you know, he got what he wanted. Yes, he's absolutely indisputably famous. But is it in the way that he wanted? Is it still the same image that he had pursued so doggedly for so many years?
0: So you know what was what was Bill Gross's role in the financial crisis in two thousand eight? You know there was this whole period where there were all of these junk bonds.
1: Can you explain what his role was there? Yeah, absolutely. So as we remember, the uh, financial crisis of two thousand eight really started as kind of a housing market problem, where the housing market was running way too hot, and we were happily securitizing all of these mortgages into mortgage backed securities, and then repackaging those, repackaging those, yada yada. And as we know, a lot of those mortgages were not great right we were kind of overextending credit and um banks were robo signing for people it just it had gotten very far out of hand and very few people were kind of willing to call the end of that party right it was much more fun to just keep profiting from it um but eventually of course it had to turn and you know when people weren't able to make those payments and um there's a lot more to unpack there with you know adjustable rate mortgages where the interest rate balloons and you're like oh okay i could make last month's payment but i can't make this month's payment Anyway, so I think um, the role that Bill Gross and PIMCO played, you know, they, more than anyone, I think, saw this turn coming and structured a a kind of trading paradigm around that. So a lot of people did see it coming, but the the trading of it is really the hardest part. Timing and trading, I guess. And what PIMCO did was they, they both were really conservative going into the crisis. So they saw this coming and they tried to position in such a way that they wouldn't lose so much money, right, when everything went bad. And they basically succeeded in that, you know, there were some certainly some uh, rough patches, but they for to a really large extent, especially relative to peers traded that very well. But then in the aftermath, they did even better, they were able to capitalize on the opportunities where things, you know, had sold off so much, and, and the prices were just super low, because everybody else, you know, was panicking and getting out they were able to scoop those things up for cheap. And they also were able to think about what the government was going to do and more or less get ahead of the government. So if the government is looking at the financial market, which is completely on fire, and they're like, okay, what do we do here? They demonstrated that they were not going to just let things fail. You know, they let Lehman fail, but there were so many other examples where they were able and willing to step in and stop the panic and to backstop these institutions. And PIMCO was like, okay, If you're going to save AIG, if you're going to save Freddie, what else are you going to save? What are you not willing to let fail? And whatever that thing was, you know that you're going to keep your money, that if you buy, you know, a bond issued by a company or an institution that the government thinks is, you know, too big to fail, you're going to make your money. You're going to, that bond, that investment is going to be money good because it's the U.S. government backstopping it. So I think more than anyone, they were able to see that clearly. And jump on it. You know, they also had an enormous role in kind of advising the government. And in my view, they more than anyone helps to kind of force the articulation of the government's backstop of Fannie and Freddie, the mortgage giants. And that I think is, is pretty huge. You know, they that had been an implicit guarantee before. And not to get too into the weeds here. But, um, but they pressured the government and more or less made the government force the government's hand there to say, okay, Fannie and Freddie, Yes, let's take those into conservatorship. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and put the full uh, government support behind these institutions. Um, yeah, did that answer the question?
0: Yeah, it did. So, <laughs> so is this is this why he was so supportive? Because this was during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. so supportive of their handling of the financial crisis because they were able to take advantage of it and you know profit. What a great is question. That, I hadn't yeah. really thought about
1: it in that in that way. That it was sort of a. Um, you know, I like this politician because they benefited me personally. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty reasonable, right? That, you know, I if I benefited personally and professionally massively from the way you handle something, I'm definitely gonna think you handled it well. Um, I think there's a sort of broad-based consensus that it was an emergency and we got through it. So, you know, we used government tools that were available at the time. Did we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. I think a lot of people have reevaluated how we handled it, especially with this, you know, more recent kind of coronavirus induced financial crisis but i think yeah i think that's probably pretty reasonable that you know he he has grappled publicly with this kind of am i too rich have i made too much money and he seems to have shifted his allegiance at at certain points in history where he you know had kind of considered himself conservative but you know he ended up saying that he supported labor over capital at one point for example and I don't know I think that's really interesting and and do these things shift because of his own personal stance and like where he falls in the universe of course I keep phrasing things as questions I'm so sorry <laughs> so, <laughs> that's like... fine. Uh, yeah no that's why
0: I mean that's the first thing I thought when I read that and I know he's mm-hmm. still registered as a republican but when I read that connection that you know yes he was really mm-hmm. supportive of this handling and then you know shortly after that and then he made
1: lots of money <laughs> right right no that's really that's where my brain went you know Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. You do approve of things more. It's so hard to have kind of an objective opinion if I just made a billion (laughs) dollars from whatever you just did. Thank you so much. I love you. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: What do you think it was one of the most, because, you know, like we said, he started this company in 1971. And I think that 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 his start as a part of his personal narrative, which is really important because, like you said, he was a psych major. I think the company Pimco was an insurance company first or something like that.
1: Yeah, it was a, a, a part of an insurance company, an asset management unit within a larger, like just a normal insurance company.
0: Right. So considering where it is today or where it was when he left, that seems pretty notable.
1: What What was the
0: most consequential thing he did to shape the bond market and to shape Pimco?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) so the most influential thing he did to shape the bond market, I would say is his kind of unending push into new products and and kind of complicated products. Um, you know, he was very enthusiastic from the jump in mortgages, for example, and in derivatives. So in both cases, you know, these these words might seem extra familiar with the lens of the financial crisis. And that's not to say that Bill Gross caused the financial crisis, of course, but I do think that in the financial world, his performance in the mortgage market and his uh, very enthusiastic embrace of derivatives both of these things helped to kind of encourage others and um, created space for other people to kind of follow in his footsteps. So I think a lot of that created big ripple effects. I think that he and Pimco were so enormous and so successful in these markets that, and in these products that others wanted to follow suit. And there you have it. So that's that's one way in which, a very, very tangible way in which he kind of helped shape this market. And in terms of creating Pimco, you know, it is really interesting that it spun out of an insurance company because there was always a lot of friction in that setup where PIMCO is an extremely profitable company and and someone like Bill stands to make and did make a ton of money from it. And so you had this weird dynamic where back in the day, he had this vanity license plate that said bonds. And it was this big deal where, you know, the fancy cars that he and his peers at PIMCO drove didn't really fit in with the dynamic at the Pacific Mutual, you know, this this kind of sleepy life insurance company. And that created this internal friction. But that profitability also, you know, I think the the founders of PIMCO and people who have worked there over the ages would say that the incentive of having the potential for, you know, accruing such riches is part of why they were so successful. Why the company worked so well is because they had this partnership model for so long. They all, you know, profited when the company profited. And because they were all bought in, like, you need to have this ability to make a bajillion dollars so that the company thrives. Now, is that arguable? Of course. Can we unpack that more? Of course. But uh, but that's, I think, what they would say. So.
0: Yeah. And that kind of speaks to, I think, you know, what people consider his fall, right? Like when he left mm. Pimco, because I, was it mostly around just like interpersonal relationships with people that he worked with? I mean, how did he end up leaving Pimco? And can you talk a bit about the the, the culture there, like this toxic culture? I know we kind of overused that word, but this, this toxic culture at the company and how he contributed to it.
1: Oh yeah. So I think it's, yes, that word is overused. Sure. But I do think it super applies here. Yeah, I think he has a very intense personality. And, you know, he tries to avoid eye contact on the trade floor. He's very hard on trade ideas. He's very hard on people presenting trade ideas. And I think he thinks that behavior and service of performance is kind of anything goes. It's, it's, this is me, you know, projecting or speculating a little bit, but I think that he considers himself a nice person. And it's more the whatever has to be done to get the best performance for clients is what you should do. And if it's a little bit not nice, like, Sorry. So from that vantage point, I think that behavior from the top really trickled down to the rest of the company, really permeated the rest of the company. And that also manifests, you know, they had this extremely intense approach to wringing basis points out of everything they did. And to a point that's unusual, I think, in in asset managers, you know, of course, every asset manager, every money manager wants to make more money for their clients. But there's a tipping point you know, there's a, an inflection point where the work that you're doing is actually not really marginally accretive. <laughs> you know, the next little, the next hour of trying really hard is too much trying and you should stop. So there's kind of a spectrum of where different asset managers will give up on that. You know, they'll, they'll stop. They'll say, okay, you know, we've put in a good day. I'm going to go home now. And the way I understand it, PIMCO just doesn't do that. They kind of just never stop. And that's great for clients, but it also is super miserable and a lot of people i talk to remember you know grinding their teeth that night waking up screaming um, oh no nice. <laughs> i know truly and like you know going to an investment committee presentation and if your formatting's wrong you know bill gross is going to walk out of the room or admonish you in front of everyone and it's no one's going to stand up for you and arguably you know i'm just thinking about you know broader american culture and it's not like this is unheard of right there are a lot of really intense workplaces but i do think that the reporting on this led me to believe this was just a crucible and you know, I think that's kind of, I don't think that's changed much in the aftermath of all this. I think it's still this way, just without Bill, which people interpret things differently, you know. So if I'm getting the command from above to be really paranoid and, and you know, squeeze every basis point out and be really intense and be hard on my employees and my, you know, my reports, how I carry that out is going to be different from the next person. And you see this, you know, PIMCO is grappling with a lot of uh, allegations of discrimination, And it's a really tough time for them that they're kind of grappling with how to reconcile their historical culture and this culture of intensity, and the renegotiation that we're having with what we demand from our employers. Right? That right now, especially, we're saying, you know what? This is really not okay. You can't talk to me like this. You can't expect me to work like this. This is intolerable, and I just don't have to sit here and take it. So, and that's of course broad based and across across the labor market. But I think it's really interesting in a crucible like PIMCO.
0: Yeah, you know, that was actually my next question. You know, when you were describing this, I thought, you know, is this really, is he really an outlier? And is this in Mm. this culture really an outlier? Because I would have assumed as an outsider that a lot of environments in the financial industry were were similar.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, there are definitely a lot of, you know, stories of people at hedge funds slamming their phones down so hard that it shatters the phone or whatever, all these dramatic stories. (laughs) Sure, all of that exists. And all of that is real. Now, I don't think it's every single place, though. And I do think that we hear about the extreme examples. Um, and like, that's not okay, right? <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. work in an environment where my boss just shattered a phone over whatever. Like nothing, really nothing in the corporate world should be worth all that. Like, yes, we should absolutely take seriously the fiduciary duty of, of investing people's money. I want people to take that seriously. And that, that's a great responsibility. But at the same time, I just don't think we need to be kind of abusive over it. Um, (laughs) it's a theory that I have I don't know Um, but you're right you know it is you know PIMCO was is and was really intense and and I think it it uh, hopefully is not totally representative you know I've talked to a lot of people who worked there and then went elsewhere right and they seem to think that PIMCO was worse they say that you know I my life is better now I'm glad I got out Um, and I do think it is um, you know it's it's on the more extreme side I don't think it's Ten standard deviations away from the norm, but I I do think it is worse than the average bear for sure. For sure,
0: I read that he later had a test and he blamed a lot of his behavior on Asperger's. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did you? Is that? I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that. And yeah, you know, I, I think that's a bit unfair because you know, people with Asperger's aren't necessarily aren't abusive, right? Those two things don't go together. <laughs> and I just think that that's an interesting way for him to I don't know frame you know, yeah. his, his behavior. I don't know.
1: Well, no, I think you're right. And you've hit on a really interesting, there's so many layers to this, right. Where it's a valid diagnosis and it's a valid difference. Right. And maybe you are interacting with people differently than they expect because of this difference, because you know, you're neurodivergent in this way. And that's a real thing. Sure. Isn't it? is ex is it an excuse to be an asshole? <laughs> Absolutely not, right, so there's a difference, and I do think it actually in you know he he cites this ex- this experience of reading a Michael Lewis book and going through this checklist of oh my gosh, I think I have Asperger's. And that's actually not uncommon. When that book came out, that Michael Lewis book came out, everyone was doing that. I just, I feel like every source that I talked to in financial markets, they were like, I just, I was I think I'm a little Asperger's. <laughs> and I was like, this is not just a blank check. You don't get to just claim this and run around and just be horrible to people and be like, oh, sorry. So, you know, Bill again is not alone in this, but I do think that that there's both a conflation happening where people do seem to think that this gives them you know, the ability to act in a certain way and just say, oh, you know, I'm neurodivergent. On the flip side, there is some um, truth to, you know, he didn't want to make eye contact and he didn't want to chat with everybody. And he was really intensely focused. He didn't want to be disturbed. And he got upset when he was disturbed. That's real. Those things are real. So I think these two things absolutely coexist. And, and it's, it's really important to talk about them carefully. But I do think a lot of people don't talk about them carefully, especially in financial markets.
0: I, I think one of the central parts of the the toxic culture that, you know, they've been criticized for was the the lack of diversity and, you know, with women mm-hmm. and people of color. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and how it fits into your understanding of Bill Gross, his personality and, you know, how he shaped the culture there, you know, and, and one of the mm-hmm. things that, that I think is really surprising to me is that he, you know, he did inject some emotionality into his business like you know he had this newsletter and Mm -hmm. he's very you know you can see his background in psychology there so i'm surprised that he would not have i guess i'm not surprised if he could just talk (laughs) about the diversity thing you know in the culture there
1: yeah so you know he's talked about this too where he said that you know they did try to find women to hire and promote and I'm sure to some extent that's true. You know, they did have a, a female partner, uh, Margaret Isberg, who sounds like she was just amazing. And and there were certainly women, you know, in and around PIMCO at the time, but, you know, throughout their the arc of the company's entire arc. So to some extent, yes, there just weren't that many women around and people of color around in the whole financial industry. And that can't necessarily be an individual's responsibility to rectify at the same time of course, it is also the powerful individual's responsibility to rectify, right? So so it's a it's a tough dynamic. I don't think, I don't have a sense that Bill was, you know, horrifyingly sexist and racist. That's just not what I found in my reporting. So I do think, you know, and, and this goes back to what I was saying too, about it's it's how people interpret a culture and carry it out. So I do think that he could have done more. He maybe should have done more. He absolutely should have done more to help to offset the, these kind of structural biases that, that we see throughout society and that we certainly see within PIMCO. Um, there's this one woman who worked at PIMCO. She was especially important in the 80s. And she kind of gets no credit. You know, she's in the book. She, uh, her name's Pat Fisher, um, later Pat Podlick. And she ran operations at PIMCO. And she did an amazing job. Like Pimco's operations were stellar. They were very, you know, one guy was recently telling me that, you know, they never made a trade mistake. It was so rare for Pimco to make a trade mistake, which is oh. so crucially important in, you know, being a good company that does trading, right? Like if banks think that you're going to call them back and be like, oh gosh, sorry, we messed up on that trade, you're not going to get the best execute. The bank's going to be like, these, these people are jokers. So anyway, they had best-in-class execution, and I think that's, you know very largely attributable to this one person pat fisher and she was not ever made partner to me that's an egregious oversight they in my view they absolutely should have made her partner i view her sort of you know i don't know if this is me rewriting history but i view her as a co-founder in a way did she, and that's absolutely not how the history was written so i do think that they had women and people of color contributing and maybe their contributions were undercounted you know
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much there because, you know, as women, we know that, you know, we can kind of put ourselves in her shoes and Mm -hmm. that she probably understood very early on in her career that she could not make a mistake. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, Absolutely yeah i mean you see that in so many other industries and in, in, in politics and in, and again in technology you know women go in understanding that mm-hmm. they're going to be kind of outnumbered you know mm-hmm. that you know they kind of have to be close to perfect you know in their execution yeah. and so you know it's 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 kind of sad in a way i mean it's not it's kind really of sad it's very sad. <laughs> it's <really> sad. <laughs> it's, it's not in any kind of way in in every way yeah um but yeah the implications definitely. are
1: depressing too where like you know I don't necessarily think that 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 it's super that everyone made so much money, you know, from from these jobs necessarily. But the women were shut out from that opportunity, you know, like she was never made partner. Yeah. She never got to the profit sharing part of the chat, you know, of the whole thing. And that's that's where the money was. So it's like you can just see that, you know, it's just a really clear articulation of this age old thing that that we know so well that, you know, you're not allowed near the power and you're not allowed to have the money that goes with it are those structures what we want? Absolutely not. But that's the way things are. And it's just frustrating and depressing. Yeah.
0: We need to have more nuanced conversations about this because totally how often, how this often happens in environments like this, um, which, you know, it comes out as racism and sexism uh-huh. is that the person who's at the top does not prioritize it. Right. Mm-hmm. They aren't proactively thinking about it. Like, you know, you probably just didn't think about Pat very much. Right. And that in itself is 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 sexism, maybe not in the way that like, oh, are we shortchanging her? Are we giving her her due?
1: Do you know what I mean? Yes, I absolutely do. And I think there was never a moment where he was like, I don't like Pat. I think she's a weak lady. You know, I don't think any of that happened. But you're right. The people at the top, they're not usually caricatures of evil. You know, they're not out here trying to enact oppression and be evil people. It just is it's it's almost more insidious than that it's it's quieter and it's smaller and it's much more quotidian and I think yeah Pat didn't get her due I think there's so many other people that that you know I would argue didn't get their due and I was gonna say that kind of compounds like over years and decades you know what I mean and it
0: ends up being something that's more insidious because over the years this just isn't a priority and then it ends up being something systemic and terrible and then people
1: yeah and the insidiousness also comes in, in in kind of how you think about it when it's happening to you, right? Where you're like, "Is this? Is am I just not that great at my job, or, or is it something else?" And detangling that is like, I don't know, that's kind of painful and suboptimal if you're having to consider every day, you know, or or maybe it doesn't occur to you, and that's this like blissful ignorance. But I do think, yeah, it it it's this larger thing that comes to bear and that just happens again and again and again and and absolutely compounds on itself.
0: Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. If you ever want to come on and talk about that. I mean, like me, I mean, you know, you being a woman, you know, in reporting and the financial industry and, you know, me back in technology, you know, I think part of the. I think the painful part is trying to untangle what's Mm -hmm. happening to you in real time alone, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because there aren't enough people around you to kind of share that view and share that lens and help you untangle it. And you think like, well, these people seem to like me, however, (laughs) it was never made partner. Right. And it's kind of, you know, I don't know, it kind of drives you a little bit batty, you know, just kind of like trying to to untangle it. So now we get to play, you know, where are they now? So (laughs) (laughs) You know, Bill Gross, he's at Janice right now. I, no, 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 he left. He retired That's in 2019, right? right? That's right, um, yeah. But he is now probably occupying himself with disputes with his neighbor.
1: <laughs> it does seem that way, yes. So he got in this uh, dispute with his neighbor in Laguna Beach. He has this beautiful home in Laguna Beach, right on the ocean, and he and his wife installed this Dale Chihuly sculpture. And it's, you know, blue glass tubes and some, you know, round balls that sit on the ground. And it got damaged and so they put a net over it to protect it and the neighbor was like hey man you know this is obstructing our view we don't love the net do you mind and he's like meh so the neighbor's like all right fine he files a complaint with the city and so the city's like you know laguna beach goes to bill and amy uh his wife and they're like you got to get the right permits for this this isn't permitted correctly you have to get the correct permits for both the sculpture and the net and then bill gross and amy start playing music really loud out of their home in their yard (laughs) at you know the maximum legally allowable limit and they are playing uh, a lot of 50 cent they're playing a lot of theme songs from classic television shows including but definitely not limited to Gilligan's Island so the Gilligan's Island (laughs) theme song gets played on repeat on repeat and the neighbor's like oh my god I'm losing my mind so they it eventually escalates and Bill Gross and Amy actually um alleged that the neighbor was invading their privacy by filming them all the time and watching them and installing cameras and just all this creepy stuff and then the next day the neighbor sued Bill Gross and Amy for harassment and actually the judge sided with the neighbor so they ended up basically saying yeah you can't play music on repeat with speakers aimed at your neighbor anymore
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, they ended up going, he and his wife, uh, his latest wife, they ended up going to, sorry, I didn't need to say that, his <laughs> wife <laughs>
1: went so much in that, went to jail, I think, for like five days because of that. They got sentenced to jail, yeah, for five days. They ended up not having to serve it, in part because of the coronavirus. Um, they basically were able to do a couple days community service. So that, I think, was was pretty lucky because I was just sitting there like, I did not expect Bill Gross to get sentenced to, to jail—that was a big surprise to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there's so much that could be a whole. That's book number two because I, know, I, I, I saw know. the sculpture. You know, I don't know. I like Del Chihuly, but I just, you know, I thought like move it under a patio. <laughs> it's, it's very expensive, but you know, yeah, anyway. the fact that it's
1: so close to the ocean would make me nervous. But um you know, I think. If you're living on a cliff by the ocean maybe you just have a different view of the elements and and you want it and I don't I'm the, I'm with you I would have put it you know in a more conservative place but also you know i can't afford to replace it so maybe that's the difference <laughs> yeah yeah wow that's that's a lot anyway yeah. <laughs> so so your book is is out now the bond king how
0: one man made a market built an empire and lost it all about bill gross <laughs> yes definitely. yeah so congratulations um thank you yeah. so much and Mary thank you so much for this interview thank you
1: for taking the time to talk to me thank you so much this was really fun i enjoyed it a lot